Welcome to The Buzz, I'm Christopher Conover. Arizonans will remain under a stay-at-home order for at least two more weeks. Today we bring you those updates and more on what we've learned about the novel coronavirus. Thank you all for uh, for being here. On Wednesday, the day before Arizona's month-long stay-at-home order was set to expire, Governor Doug Ducey held a press conference. Thank you all to uh, all Arizonans. Uh, there's been a lot of sacrifice that has happened in our state over the last uh, 45 days. Uh, it's been an incredible uh, couple months. Ducey announced that his stay-at-home order will be extended through May 15th and gave thanks to all those who have followed the social distancing guidelines and helped slow the spread of coronavirus infections. Our physical distancing is working. Your cooperation is working. I'm confident that we can say that we've seen the spread has been slowed, and these have been hard-fought gains. Uh, we've earned where we are today, and we are not going to undo this. The governor reviewed state data on the availability of hospital beds, ICU beds, and ventilators, and assured the public that Arizona continues to have capacity for more cases. He said while we haven't seen a major spike in cases, there also hasn't been a strong downward trend in infections or deaths. The modified stay-at-home order does allow some businesses that have been closed to begin reopening starting Monday. Services limited to curbside delivery for the first week, after which time customers will be allowed back in stores provided they have sufficient protocols in place. Bars, gyms, hair salons, and the like are not included in that part of the order. The objective is that we do return stronger economically. We are going to focus on public health, and we have our arms around that. Ducey says the state will work with the restaurant industry to gradually reopen dining rooms across the state, potentially starting as early as May 12th. But for now, the experience won't be the same as before. Food service workers and service workers wearing masks. Uh, rather than coming to your table and asking you what you'd like to drink, they'll likely inform you that they've just washed their hands. Ducey promised testing will increase starting this weekend with a testing blitz available to anyone who thinks they are infected or who has been exposed to the virus. Antibody testing led by the University of Arizona is also ramping up. The mayors of Tucson, Phoenix, and Flagstaff all called for the governor to maintain his executive order until the state could meet the CDC guidelines that call for 14 days of declines in COVID-19 cases before reopening the economy. Tucson Mayor Rahina Romero said she's pleased that the governor consulted with science and public health officials to decide to keep the stay-at-home order in place. However, she says she wants the governor to go further when it comes to allowing some businesses that can safely social distance to begin reopening on May 8th. What I would add and what I'm advocating for is for, um, for the need um, either mandatory uh, face coverings or for the Arizona Health Department and the Pima County Health Department to stress how important um, using face coverings is. 
Romero also says she's concerned that some businesses that have stayed open have not taken the social distancing requirements seriously. She says while the police and health department have issued warnings so far, that may soon change to stronger enforcement methods to ensure businesses follow best practices. In the research world, scientists are working overtime right now. Every day seems to bring news of further findings about the coronavirus, possible therapies, and eventual vaccines. We checked in again with Michael Warabee, who leads the University of Arizona's Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, to get an update on what we know about COVID-19. He says one thing he's been working on is analyzing the genome sequences of the virus from all over Arizona. And uh, what we can see is that the Arizona epidemic is kind of complex. It probably had many individual starting points of, of people traveling from uh, elsewhere in the country or uh, elsewhere in the world into Arizona. There's one major transmission uh, cluster that uh, started with some person probably back in late February, and that's accounting for a good chunk of the proportion of, uh, of cases uh, in the state. Uh, but uh, the, the sort of key thing that we're finding is uh, that this outbreak uh, is going to be with us until we control it everywhere. Um, it's not just a sort of local thing that we, we sort of take care of business in Arizona and then we're fine. If we've got big outbreaks happening in other parts of the states and people still traveling, uh, it's, it's going to keep reseeding transmission uh, here, here in Arizona. We hear a lot of talk about the antibody tests, especially coming out of the University of Arizona and other places. Why are these important as we go forward? Uh, they, they'll become increasingly important um, as we uh, move through this epidemic and, and more and more of us become infected uh, and hopefully have protective antibodies that will prevent us from being infected again. Uh, but at this stage, really the, the, the most useful tool in terms of testing is still the virus test, which, which tests for the genetic material of the virus. That's the one that tells you in real time that someone's infected. And we still really need to ramp that up. And you don't have to find everyone who's infected, uh, but we have to find enough of those people and then trace people that they may have uh, infected and start isolating enough people that you, you reduce the average number of, uh, of people being infected by each patient down below one. Until, until that point, the, the, the outbreak still grows and grows and grows. The antibody testing, I would, I would guess in Tucson right now, uh, we're probably still less than 3% of the community having been exposed to this virus. Uh, and so at this stage still, it, it's of interest to individual people to know that they've been infected. But in terms of a tool to get our economy back, uh, that's something that uh, is, is less important uh, than the actual virus testing. When it comes to the antibody tests, especially because they're being developed right now, are they going to be reliable or like so many other tests, there'll be false positives and things like that? The, the tests that are being developed at the University of Arizona, I think, will be as reliable as, as anything that's out there. Um, 
That said, uh, I, I think even the best antibody tests are still going to have some level of false positives, in part because there are other coronaviruses that circulate uh, and, and people may have antibodies to those common cold viruses that in a fraction of people pop up as, as something that looks like a positive to the, the new virus. Uh, and even if that kind of background false positive level is say 1%, when, when you have low prevalence, false positives end up being a good chunk of the positive results. Uh, and it's another reason why at this stage, the antibody tests are not a super reliable way of deciding, okay, you're safe to go out in the community. You don't have to worry. First of all, we don't know for sure that the antibodies are protective. They probably will be for a time. Uh, but second of all, if one third or one half of your positives are, are actually false positives, you're going to send people out uh, and give them a false sense of security, potentially. Have we learned anything more about immunity to this and how long immunity might last? There have been some important uh, advances. First of all, with these coronaviruses in general, uh, before uh, COVID-19, the picture was fairly clear that most people will get immunity, uh, but it might wane after maybe a year or two. So, so that's my expectation. That has been bolstered by animal research. So, so um, what, what's been found is that there's, there's perfect protection for um, uh, at least a month after um, exposure. And so I, I do think that that's what we're going to see. And, and I'm, I'm quite hopeful that a vaccine will be uh, very, very effective. We hear more and more about people being asymptomatic. Is, is that a case of this is how the virus is developing or we're just learning more as we go? We've known that a substantial portion of transmission is occurring from uh, uh, asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic people from early, the early days of this epidemic. That information is, is being, is sort of filtering out and more and more people are appreciating it. Uh, and there are some indications that it's even more important than we, we thought it was uh, as we realize that the number of confirmed cases is a small proportion, maybe a 10th, maybe a 20th of the number of actual cases out there. We realize we, we're clearly missing a lot of, uh, a lot of these cases. And the, again, that takes us back to the virus testing, that the, the testing in real time has to be done not just for people who are symptomatic, but for people ideally and basically anyone uh, in the population should have access to a, a really quick turnaround virus test. And particularly people who are asymptomatic, but who have been in contact with someone confirmed uh, to have, have had the virus. Those people are the ones we need to be testing uh, now. This is the week uh, Tucson is expected to be over 100 degrees for the first time this year. That has a lot of people cheering, saying that's going to be the end of the virus. When we talked a month ago, you were uh, not quite so high on that idea. And then we look at places like Guayaquil, Ecuador, that are hot and humid, and they had a massive outbreak. 
Have you had any change of, of your mind on high temperatures, summer temperatures, possibly lowering the transmission of this? No, I still think that uh, relying on that as some sort of get out of jail free card is is unwise. Uh, as you say, there are there are places uh, where this virus is is really moving quickly, uh, where the environmental conditions are supposedly the ones that should make it hard for the virus to survive. You got to remember, um, I'm looking at you on the screen, and I notice you're indoors. I'm indoors. Uh, this virus is probably transmitting indoors more than out of doors. And if your condition is anything like mine, it's fairly cool and it's fairly dry with your AC cranked. Cool and dry is what the virus likes. We keep hearing about when the peak of virus will come to Arizona. And then a few weeks after that, we can start reopening things. Do you have any better picture than anybody else of when that time could be? These projections of peaks are, are really just based on a current snapshot of, of behavior of, of people. So they're very, very sensitive to uh, whether there are stay-at-home orders in a, in a state or, uh, or not, whether people are, are taking measures like wearing a mask when they're out in public or not. And uh, the actual models that have been used for these uh, projections are actually really crude, simplistic models that aren't particularly realistic about how susceptible people bump into each other and, and create conditions where the virus might transmit. And they, they've given us, I think, an unrealistic picture of a peak followed by a dramatic decline. Uh, and I don't think we're going to see these sorts of dramatic declines, even if we, we reach a local, in time, a local peak. One of my colleagues uh, ha has put it this way, these measures that we've uh, put in place, they've allowed us to get off the sinking ship into a lifeboat. Uh, but we're still a long way from dry land. Uh, and if, if we release these measures too soon, what was talked about as the peak will just be an early bump and we'll uh, on, be on our way to even higher peaks uh, in, 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 the, in the future. And so we do have to find a way of, of balancing these, these measures with trying to not completely torpedo our economy, which in addition to having economic and financial consequences, also has health consequences. So we're, we're, we're still in a really tricky situation. All right. Well, thanks for uh, sharing some screen time with us. Thanks. It's, uh, it's nice to have a chance to stare at a screen. That was evolutionary biologist Michael Warraby. The governor's stay-at-home order will last another two weeks, but elective surgeries were allowed to resume at hospitals at the end of this week. To some people, Governor Ducey's March 19th order stopping elective surgeries may have seemed like no big deal. But in the healthcare industry, elective surgeries are more than just facelifts. It's the majority of surgery, according to Dr. Edward Miller. He's the chief medical officer at Copper Queen Community Hospital in Bisbee. Non-elective would be to preserve life or limb, and that's simply not why we replace 
hips or take out gallbladders or do tubal ligations or or the bulk of surgery is really. Miller says the loss of surgery also meant the loss of related services like labs and x-rays. If you remember early in this uh, ordeal, uh, basically boiled down to if you're healthy, stay home, and if you're sick, stay home. Uh, and then we have to figure out who of the sick to let into the clinic. Miller says for Copper Queen, that was a big financial hit because most of the Bisbee Hospital's revenue comes from lab and x-rays. That was also true for the Santa Cruz Valley Regional Hospital, an independent hospital in Green Valley. It's in a growth area with nearby Salrita booming, but Kelly Adams, the hospital CEO, says the facility was forced to nearly shut its doors when the ban on elective surgery was announced because people stopped coming to the hospital. Our business has been down about 55 percent, 60 percent since this hit. Santa Cruz Valley did receive some advanced Medicare payments from the federal government, but those are considered loans that have to be paid back in about four months. Kelly also says state funds have also helped keep the doors open. When the governor issued the elective surgery ban, the state was expecting a massive surge in cases right about now. That surge hasn't materialized, but hospitals were ready. Anne-Marie Almaden, the president and CEO of the Arizona Hospital and Healthcare Association, says rural and independent hospitals had to follow the same preparations as their more urban peers, even though they saw fewer cases. Some of those um, more rural hospitals, you know, they would have had, um, you know, a really a relatively low case count of um, COVID positive. Uh, In Cochise County, where Copper Queen Hospital is, there are about 40 confirmed COVID-19 cases, in comparison with 1,200 in Pima County and nearly 4,000 in Maricopa County. Almaden says the smaller hospitals also have different financial realities. You know, those smaller rural, rural facilities just don't have the financial reserves that some of the larger hospitals have. Um, you know, they might have economies of scale and other things that they can sort of leverage in their favor that sort of build the financial strength of the hospital. The governor has now allowed elective surgeries to resume. But getting back to normal operations isn't that easy, says Ed Miller at Copper Queen Hospital in Bisbee. The um, constraints are, are very prohibitive, uh, primarily uh, that if you start doing elective surgery, uh, one, you have to assure that you have a 14-day supply of PPE or personal protective equipment. And two, if you start doing elective surgery, you can no longer uh, ask the state or county health departments for additional PPE. I think most burdensome is the requirement that all, quote, at-risk health care workers and each patient be tested for covid uh, 19 preoperatively. Miller says anyone in a hospital is considered at risk due to the nature of the virus. So that includes cleaning staff and others who may be in the operating room before or after the procedure and never come into contact with the patient. Despite those restrictions, he says Copper Queen has applied to the state to restart elective surgeries. It was a financial necessity. The hospital also received some federal dollars and is applying for additional grants. The Santa Cruz Valley Hospital has done the same, but Kelly Adams says that doesn't mean the cash will just flow in.
the thing that we don't know, you know, is how soon is the community going to be responding? Are they going to feel comfortable coming back into hospitals? Hospitals big and small will soon find out. Most of us are at home practicing social distancing and trying to stay healthy. The pandemic has hit us all in different ways, especially if our job requires us to take care of others. University of Arizona journalism student Mauri Urcades shares her story. I'm 23 years old. I attend the University of Arizona. I'm from Tucson, Arizona, and I am in quarantine. What day of quarantine? I don't know. I've lost track of time because it's just really hard to remember things right now. I guess you can say that my life hasn't changed as drastically as other students' lives may have. The coronavirus has caused people to lose their jobs, move back home, and to really have to adjust to this new lifestyle. For now. I have lived at home my whole life and work from home, so in that sense, I haven't been as affected. Actually, I feel like I work more now. My mom has a group home daycare here at her house, so we watch more than 10 children ages ranging from 6 months to 8 years old. As much as adults are being affected by the virus, so are kids. Beautiful warm sunny days, rainbow colored playgrounds, and fast toy cars only work as a slight distraction for the children who in the back of their minds can't seem to stop thinking about the virus. I had the opportunity to talk to some of them. It's a virus that makes people sick and then they die. I don't want me to get it or my family. This, this disease is really bad and, and it's really hurting a lot of people. If it might get my parents or something, because it might not get kids but or babies, it might just get older people. The kids usually come in earliest at 5.30 in the morning and leave latest around 5 p.m. Many people need daycare now more than ever, especially those who are categorized as essential workers, which many of our parents are. One of the moms whose kids we watch works for Target, so she's working now more hours than ever. Another parent cleans houses. She needs the help. And another one is pregnant, about to have the baby, so she needs childcare for her five-year-old. <laughs> The Arizona Department of Economic Services, also known as DES, gave my mom the option to close her daycare due to the coronavirus outbreak, but she preferred not to. The reason I decided to leave my business open was because for me, it's more important to have the kids under my care so that I can keep giving them the education they deserve. Instead of being in their homes doing nothing, it's better to have them here occupied, doing projects and homework they get from school. One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, then you have to write six on here. I'm helping my mom with her business by looking after the kids and cleaning the house when needed. She pays me $200 weekly and I have more work than I can handle. Honestly, at a time like this, I feel very blessed to have a job, even though sometimes they drive me nuts. Have you ever been spanked? Um, yes. Arizona schools will not reopen this year because of the continued COVID-19 outbreak. Not only am I available to help the kids with their homework, they're also there during my own school Zoom meetings. During the time they go outside to play from about 10 until noon, I have a scheduled Zoom class. So many PowerPoints from last week and from this week. So there's a lot up there. 
So if you can just, you know, just read through it. I take my computer outside and multitask. I tend to put my audio on mute for most of the class because outside is where the kids make the most noise. You can hear them running, playing with toy cars, sand, blocks, and screaming at the top of their lungs. Hello? Why are you so anyway. dumb? Okay, so, so just know that, um, good time. I wouldn't want to interrupt my class with all of that. While I'm outside watching over the children, my mom will be inside making lunch and cleaning the house, all while dancing to songs on La Buena, a radio station that plays all types of Mexican music. The Department of Human and Health Services requires us to follow standards for cleanliness and educates us on basic hand washing, respiratory hygiene, and implementation of proper protective equipment. Here's my mom, Cecilia. Esta crisis de coronavirus ha afectado más in mis labores sanitarias en mi casa porque before we would have to disinfect every time they ate after they would play outside or whenever they used the bathroom they have to wash their hands nowadays we're doing that but a hundred times more than usual hoy en día lo estamos haciendo 100 veces más que lo que lo hacíamos antes it's so cute because as soon as the doorbell rings, the children all race to the window to see whose parent is picking up who first. Their reactions are priceless. As soon as mom or dad walk through the door, their baby will give them the big I've missed you hug. They put on their shoes and grab any toy they've brought that day, ready to finally leave. All right, that's for you guys. We'll see you guys tomorrow. Bye. Thank you. Bye, Michaela. As the kids head back home and prepare to face the outside world, they think of all the advice we've been sharing with them since this pandemic started. Don't get next to a person when they cough. Don't get next to a person when they sneeze. Put sanitizer. Don't go outside. Get a mask. Lock doors. And keep windows closed. Stay home. That story was produced by Maury Urcades, a journalism student at the University of Arizona. Her story comes to us through a partnership with the UA Journalism School. We've been asking to hear your positive stories during the pandemic. George told us he's actually getting a full eight hours of sleep now. Lunch lady Colleen is still working and says the chocolate milk came back last week to the utter delight of kids receiving to-go meals from their schools. We want to hear more of your stories of the silver linings found during the pandemic. Find a link to share your story in the show notes on our website. And that's the buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Ariana Brochus is the show's producer and editor. Vanessa Ontiveros is our production assistant. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Duncan Moon is the interim news director. And our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.